Welcome to Conventions, a podcast about the history of constitutions brought to you by the Quill Project at Pembroke College, Oxford. My name's Grace Mallon, and I'll be your host. In this episode, I'm joined by two researchers who are deeply involved with the Quill Project's digital modelling of the American federal constitution. Kiana McAllister and Erica Croft are students at Utah Valley University in Orem, Utah. They are part of the team at the university's Center for Constitutional Studies, investigating the negotiation of the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which are known collectively as the Reconstruction Amendments. In this episode, we discuss what it's like to work for the Quill Project, why it's important to understand the origins of the Reconstruction Amendments, and what this original research can tell us about these brief but utterly transformative items of American constitutional law. Welcome, Kiana and Erica. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thank you for having us. It's terrific to have you here. I'm sorry that your um, fellow team member, Mizuki, can't be with us today, but I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, So my first question for pretty much everyone on the podcast is, is how did you get involved with whatever it is that I happen to be interviewing you about. Um, and, and so what I'm really interested in is, is why did you want to come and work for the Quill Project and how particularly did you get involved with the Reconstruction Project? So I was first introduced to Quill um, at a study abroad program at Oxford with Dr. Nicholas Cole. Um, at the time, uh, him and his team were working on the Constitutional Convention of 1787. And so that's really when I was first introduced to Quill and um, just the unique perspective that uh, the Quill platform can give to to history. And so um, I started working for the Center for Constitutional Studies just a couple months after that study abroad program and uh, quickly became involved with Quill more from a researcher perspective, um, a user perspective, um, looking at sovereignty and federalism, uh, using the Quill platform to do that kind of research. And then um, I switched over to being a researcher for Quill um, and modeling projects within the platform and was immediately drawn to the Reconstruction Amendments um, and just the significant history of them. So that's how I uh, become involved in Quill. I actually ended up working on it by coincidence, sort of. I just, I really wanted a campus job where I could work uh, with records and study history and politics. Um, Yeah, so I was looking for a good job, basically. So I sort of found myself working on it. But how I found myself working on it for a couple of years and sort of uh, investing a lot of my time and care into it really is because uh, at the Center for Constitutional Studies, they let us sort of choose what direction we wanted to go in. And the materials for reconstruction just just captivated me emancipation to um just this era of of american history really became my life and it ate me up (laughs) 
Those are both really interesting answers. And in a funny way, I suppose my story of getting into Quill is sort of a mixture of both of those two stories. I also fell into it kind of by accident by getting to know Nicholas Cole, who was one of my tutors um, when I was doing my undergraduate degree here at Oxford. Um, but, but I was also essentially looking for employment after I graduated and he happened to have this, you know, he was starting this digital project and said, we don't know whether it's going to work, but, you know, come along um, and have a go at, at, at doing some data entry for us. Um, and that led to sort of reading the records of the federal convention and getting invested in those texts and getting invested in that historiography. And that was how, how I got interested in it. So I think it's sort of an astonishing example um, I think a lot of people who are setting up digital humanities projects talk about wanting to get undergraduates involved. Um, and I think this is a really amazing um, example of how that can actually work um, and the skills that you can learn along the way and the way it can help you to become um, a real life historical researcher at a very high level um, by getting to work, by being trusted um, to work with these texts, which is something um, that I think is amazing about what Quill and the Constitutional Studies Centre are managing to do together. So my next question, sort of off the back of that, is that um, history is going in a lot of, obviously, history uh, as a discipline encompasses all kinds of different areas of study, and this pluralism is really important and good. Um, I think as a political historian, a historian of institutions, I sometimes feel like that area of the discipline is undervalued or is is being left behind or is treated as as kind of a, a backwards or a conservative um, project. And I wanted to know how you as as students felt about that designation and whether you feel that actually um, people in general, regardless of their sort of political affiliation or political interests, should be interested in the history of constitutions um, and institutions. So I, I would just first like to say that I, I am well aware that constitutionalism has kind of that label of conservative or for more conservative ideologies. Um, but it's interesting, especially with the, the reconstruction amendments we've been working with, to see that this whole idea of um, liberal and conservative, you know, how the various ideologies use the Constitution is not a new thing. I mean, we're having the very same debates um, today as were being had, you know, during the development of the Reconstruction Amendments. And so I think that there is a lot of value. I think that uh, for liberals today, um, there's still a lot that can be found uh, looking at constitutional history because, you know, people with those very same ideas um, were pushing similar things uh, 100, 200 years ago. So I don't think uh, much has changed. And I think that, uh, you know, that old adage of no history so you don't repeat it, you know, kind of it's, it's an adage for a reason, so, yeah. 
You know, um, insofar as like the politics of constitutional history, it, that's, it's a kind of an important question to me, uh, like insofar as like how conservative the field can be or can seem, um, you know, I, we can even see that reflected in our own project. For instance, we know that we decided like due to limited time and resources that we would put to the side things like Freedmen's Bureau bills and petitions um, from uh, black Americans who are petitioning for emancipation and civil for civil rights and freedmen's bills and that kind of thing and so you sort of see that kind of dynamic reflected in our project but at the same time uh, if history is inquiry into like power and change like the, the like it was it was these institutions that developed these constitutional amendments that became quite influential. Uh, so, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a relevant place to be looking, I think. Um, and insofar as the conservative character of the field, I think, you know, constitutional history sort of has the same problem that Western history can have, where um, there's this sort of mysticism, there's this exceptionalism, and we went into this project intentionally resisting that. I think those are really important points from both of you. And I want to come back to that question that Erica just raised of, of what kinds of documents you choose to include in the project. And I think that's a really um, interesting one that I also came across sort of doing the 1787 project is there is a ton of extraneous, or we could call it extraneous material, um, things like correspondence, um, things that are happening in Philadelphia, the, the creation of the Northwest Ordinance, for example, right at exactly the same time the Constitution is being uh, negotiated. Um, and, and how you choose sort of what kind of material goes in, I think, is a really important question. I want to get back to that in a second. Um, but but to sort of go off off that question about about the politics, um, and as as you've both laid out, I think that there is real importance um, to uh, a fresh approach to constitutional history um, now and not leaving it as a sort of nineteenth century project. Um, I wanted to ask. Uh, I mean, this may be this is obviously um, perhaps naturally clear to you as Americans, why is it important that we understand the legislative process by which the precise wording of the Reconstruction Amendments was negotiated? Well, I think that uh, the precise wording is where you get um, the controversy, right, is, I think, really important for understanding um, significant Supreme Court cases and decisions that uh, really influence all of our lives here in the U.S. Uh, my kind of answer to that would be that uh, this sort of period of U.S. history that we're really dealing with in our project, it's kind of like 1861 to 1875 about, is kind of an extremely revolutionary period insofar as our conceptualization of the application of certain fundamental liberal principles like liberty, which is sort of reflected in the development of our constitutional text at this time and also its interpretation. And we can kind of see, like Kiana mentioned, that a lot of modern controversy 
sees are sort of like ripples in the water that we can still see. Like uh, if anyone, the, a really popular film in this last year, like during the Black Lives Matter uprising, like the 13th Amendment film um, by, I want to say her name is Ava DuVernay. Uh you know, I think like that would leave viewers with a lot of questions about like how that text was developed. And you know, you our project would be actually a, a good place to start with that. And like maybe you would discover like the text coming from the Northwest Ordinance, which you just happened to bring up. And and if you looked at the debates, maybe you would even learn that how that that, that they were how nervous really Congress was to even be amending the Constitution. Like how sort of the norm, the political norm at that moment really was. How can we make this amendment that is doing something radical seem traditional um and and so like you can really explore these kind of modern controversies in the past but what i will say importantly and this also has to do with like sort of the conservatism of con history as well is what our project really doesn't do is it isn't a like a, a an original intent function where you can sort of input your questions about modern jurisprudence and output the true meaning of due process i don't think that you'll get that from our project but if you go in it with with questions you'll come out with insights for sure you have been making a lot of choices one of the things that quill allows you to do as you've said um is to make a lot of choices a about you know obviously at the center which kinds of projects you want to get involved with and then when you're building a digital model of the um of the particular convention or the particular legislative process it's not just a question is it of uh quote unquote data entry which is the word that that nicholas often applies to this um you actually have to do a lot of interesting historical analysis and research to get to this point so what i wanted to ask you about now um is is two things first of all what kinds of archival research have you had to do to supplement um the the available records that you know one might be able to sort of google um and also how have you chosen what kinds of material you wanted to include in the model i think this is a very long <laughs> answer to this question so i'll try to be as brief as possible um but there's just so much that has gone into the choices that we've made for these projects, um, when we first went into it, um, you know, our initial um, our initial plan was to just find the resolutions attached to the amendments, model those, and be done with it. Um, so we thought it would be a really quick quick model, and that did not end up being the case. Um, as we got into the records, we found that there were so many propositions and bills that were intertwined with the drafting of the 14th Amendment um, that we ended up expanding our scope a little bit. Um, and as we did that, we found that there was more attached to it. And so um, we kind of had to, we had to revise our plan. And so we kind of looked at it like a target, you know, the inner circle would be um, everything central to those constitutional amendments. And then as we worked out things that are a little more periphery to that, 
um, to those central amendments, um, we made decisions. Okay, is this vital to the understanding of the drafting of these amendments? If it was, we would keep it. If it wasn't, but was still good for conte uh, contextual purposes, we kind of put it on our, on our maybe list um, for later. But uh, that's kind of the process we followed as we've encountered um, new things in the records. So it started out just looking at the congressional journals and the Congressional Globe, which documents the debates and proceedings of each Congress. Um, and then from there, as we came across bills that seemed relevant, we looked at outside um, scholarly material. So um, as we researched, you know, Kurt Lash, Eric Foner, we, it gave us a better idea of the types of things that we should be including. Um, and so some of our, our choices and our decisions were based off of that too. Um, but we found that as far as records go, there's not many committee records that are accessible to the public right now, um, digitally at least. So that's kind of an issue we've run into with the records. Um, we found that we needed a lot more committee records than we initially thought, and those just have not been available to us, especially with COVID. So. Um, we've hit a couple snags with that, which hopefully will work itself out as things reopen. But um, there's a long answer <laughs> to your question. I'll just, I just, I'll just add that uh, you know, like like Kiana said, when we were sort of hit with this realization that, especially unlike a convention, like this was developed just in Congress. And so the lines between when are they talking about the amendment and when are they talking about other, like maybe supplemental legislation actually became not nearly as clear as I expected it to be. Uh, sometimes even just procedurally, the, the lines became blurred. And so when we were faced with that, we realized suddenly that everything that we were doing was an active choice to include. And so then what then the question of what is being withheld from the project becomes much more important. So we spent a lot of time, like Kiana said, with, uh, with, uh, with Kurt Lash and also other legislative histories and just trying to figure out, you know, what do other people see as important? But then we also... Um, you know, if I could shout anyone out, it would be the Library of Congress's website, the American Memory Project. Does so much heavy lifting for me. I've spent so much time on that website just reading the record um, and finding bills that nobody's never ever heard of. It's not on Wikipedia anywhere. I was going to say that it, it, it was really, it was the point where me and Kiana really realized that, you know, uh, constitutional amendments developed in Congress isn't like a convention, there aren't solid boundaries, and so everything that we decided to include had to be very intentional, and you know, conversely, anything that we excluded had, you know, a lot of meaning to it. It means that we would believe it didn't have a place in the narrative, basically. Uh, there were some things, actually, that we did exclude that we wish we wouldn't have, but that's, you know, limits of resources and write that down, basically. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but uh, we started, we made everything as intentional as possible, really. And so then we sort of were able to construct what, what do we want Reconstruction Era to mean? And so it is a bit odd. We call it the Reconstruction Era, but we start in 1861 with the Corwin Amendment, or 1860 in December, actually, um, and end in like 1875 with the Civil Rights Act. Um, but, but, but it's because we felt the inclusion of these told a more like holistic and well-rounded and uh, importantly a non-exceptionalist history of of these of the develop of these developments because when we were doing the research of the legislative history what we found to be like a little bit of a norm was this sort of perception where sort of white liberal republicans were standing on this cutting edge of history just ever advancing like 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 liberty for all which is sort of true but it's also sort of not true especially if we're looking at that that period between 1860 and 1865 where you know these lawmakers are really grappling with their own white supremacy and the realization that slavery might not be able to last by material demand uh, regardless of how they feel about it and they're sort of grappling with the possibility of a biracial society that it seems that they're not quite ready for and so you see a lot of bargaining a lot of denial a lot of the processes of the stages of grief <laughs> frankly um and uh so ultimately we sort of started with the Corwin Amendment so that you could ask yourself about emancipation how did they get from here to there and why um sort of how we sort of how like the intentional selection of materials plays into like the character of our project and sort of the the result is that we wanted to build a collection that is well-rounded that isn't that isn't self-flattering as well um that you could go for uh, genuine insights about uh the constitutional texts of this period but also really just the political terranium itself i think and just to add to Erica's comments, um, we also found it really important to include um, failed uh, drafts of what we're working with. So um, we kind of found that in the legislative histories we were um, researching, you know, a lot of it had somewhat of a survivalist bias to it. Um, and a lot of those failed drafts were overlooked. And we found quite a lot of value in including those um, failed drafts and yeah, no, Kiana's absolutely right. Other petty do documents that seem rather petty become interestingly important when they all like a funnel, they'll funnel all of these resolutions and random, like, you know, it just seems like some random senator's opinion in a resolution and other random bills will get funneled in a committee and output. Um, like significant constitutional text afterwards. So we found that sort of including all of the spaghetti that they threw on the wall to be as important as possible. <laughs> I love the idea of them throwing spaghetti at the wall. Um, and I think, I think those are, those are all really important points. So I think, um, I think the fact that a lot of these records actually aren't publicly available is so important, something that I encounter a lot working on political, constitutional, institutional history is the idea that, oh, no, that's all online. That's all online. And then there's so much. I work with state legislative records, which actually isn't available. Some of it isn't online. Some of it isn't even in print. 
some of it is still in manuscript. Um, so I think that's that's really striking um, for, from you, Kiana. I also think what really strikes me about this whole conversation is the fact that this question of, you know, including and excluding material, um, deciding on the chronology of your project, when's it going to start, when's it going to end, um, is something that a lot of historians won't be dealing with until until the PhD, essentially. Um, and, and they won't necessarily realise that a documentary edition, which is what you guys are essentially creating, is something which is based on a set of decisions about, about crafting a narrative, es essentially. Um, and what you guys are trying to do is say, we're not going to we're not going to craft a narrative um, which only includes success, which has a clear arc towards freedom, um, but but one that sort of helps to make sense of the fact that you know reconstruction doesn't work um, in a lot of people's minds, or, or a lot of its gains are very rapidly reversed um, during and after the period that you are dealing with. So I think those are really important. And interesting points that you're able to make actually through those decisions about what kinds of material to include. So my, um, I have I have sort of three more questions. Um, the first one is is how has working at Quill changed the way you think about doing the history of the United States? I think working on Quill has really changed um, my perception of history, especially U.S. history. Um, and that, as naive as this sounds, I think I went into it thinking um, things were more black and white. So working on Quill has shown me the nuances of our history um, and that it definitely is not black and white. Um, but even more than that, I think um, the biggest thing I've taken away is the negotiated process, right? That. Um, a lot of these are compromises and a lot of these um, members of Congress during the Reconstruction era came with their ideals, right? They, they had a purpose, they had what they wanted, and it did not end up how any of them wanted, you know? And um, there was a lot of negotiating, there was a lot of compromise, whether for the good or for the bad. Um, but I, I've really appreciated working with Quill and seeing that um, negotiated side to um, these founding documents, if you will. Um, I, th I think the biggest change in my perception of American history would have to be insofar as how I see how I see constitutional amendments has basically changed completely, and that I used to see them. Like you would think because they're taking up text and discussing it for days and arguing over it and amending it and changing it, that, that it would be, everything is very intentional. It's just, it's, it's much more chaotic. Uh, I think we have a tendency to assume a sort of, uh, and a lot of these men are educated and smart, but we, we assume a sort of, uh, a, a, we put them on a pedestal of brilliance often, even when, and that's sort of implied when we call them framers, and it's true that they did frame something, so it's not entirely a lie, of course, but uh, <laughs> the extent to which it was uh, an act of uh, really precise engineering that was supposed to have very clear outcomes, for me, I can't see that as anything more than a fairy tale anymore. <laughs> 
fairy tale of of anyone getting what they intended down on the page at the end of this process of negotiation um i think that's a that's a really um that's a really great insight and the idea that that every all of this text ends up as kiana says coming out of of compromises of these tiny little changes that are made to individual clauses and words through this process um i think is a really important it is one of the sort of key insights of of quill and and the idea that you know what a person's political ideology is not necessarily going to give birth to this you know um whole and entire um text uh is is absolutely essential um speaking very quickly about about these these framers um what was it like encountering their views um on the nature of american society and particularly race relations um how did that make you how did that make you feel essentially reading reading those texts and their attitudes that they carry and it was pretty disillusioning for me honestly there were some days that i walked away from reading the records um feeling heavier and discouraged because I mean, there's just no doubt the plain racism that is going on at this time. And you know, the men that feel that it is their duty to um, to make known how, um, how unintelligent black people were and how they were not able to, to vote or didn't have the capacity to uh, contribute to society and government. Um, and so it was definitely discouraging for me um, to read that. Um, of course, there are a few instances and there are a few members of Congress that time that were not that way, um, which was refreshing. But um, I was just talking to Erica yesterday about this, but we kind of uh, currently, you know, there's kind of this idea that like, oh, we can't judge past generations by um, our current standards, right? So yes, they may have been racist back then, but they didn't know differently. Kind of, um, you know, that kind of excuse that we give um, when looking at history. But it, it's, I've come to really resent that, especially as I've worked on the, these projects, because I found that no, they they knew they knew that they were they knew that they were being racist. It might have been more acceptable back then, um, and more popular, <laughs> but it there were still those who were saying no, this is this is wrong, and it was a choice, and that's become more and more clear to me. So, um, I hope that that's something that our projects can bring um, is kind of. A, exposing, um, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, exposing the this idea that they it was a choice for them to be racist. I, yeah, I can only add on to that. And that's just that it is extremely depressing. 
you want to hold hope in so far as like the the real liberals um that 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 are sort of resisting the people who think human beings are property but then when you realize that they have white savior complexes as well and are also white supremacists and you know like let's emancipate the slaves but then let's please export them to liberia or to haiti or to texas or to anywhere but here because i can't cope with a biracial society I think there's a I think that's a really significant um point that that you've both made um about the fact that even uh the quote unquote good guys um have have in many ways very unpalatable um views from uh today's perspective but but also as as you both say that um the idea that um there was a uniform standard of racism at the time uh, of acceptable racism um, is simply not true and simply not represented in the records that we have. So one last question for you. Um, what's next for the Reconstruction Amendments project? Um, where are we? Um, and and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you're going to be able to get back into the archives fairly soon or the archives are going to be able to come back to you um and then and then sort of when can we get access to this research is my real last question so we've completely finished modeling the 13th 14th and 15th amendment so those we are just waiting to um kind of curate some commentaries and collections to help better navigate those projects um Right now, I am modeling the Civil Rights Act of 1875. Erica is modeling the Corwin Amendment. So we're kind of working on opposite tail ends, just rounding out, finishing off that narrative um, that we're hoping to achieve with these projects. Um, Like you said, with the archives being closed, it's been hard to get those committee records, which are really essential to what we're doing. Um, especially the Committee on the Judiciary. So once those open up, we hope to get those and um, get them included in the model. Um, They're not digitalized yet, so that will be a really exciting um, thing that our projects can offer is a digital copy of those records that are currently not available. So um, that's kind of what we're looking at next for the reconstruction projects and hopefully they will be available to the public um, next year. This is absolutely fantastic news. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you both and, and you know, seeing what fantastic work is still being done, continues to be done on Quill, that was will be done on Quill into the future. Um, and I think um, you've both represented really profoundly how significant this project is um this reconstruction amendments project is for understanding american constitutionalism for understanding american politics and society not just historically but also today so thank you both so much kiana and erica for coming on the conventions podcast thank you for listening to conventions i'm grace mallon and i was joined by kiana McAllister and erica croft researchers at Utah Valley University's Centre for Constitutional Studies. This was the last episode of the first season of Conventions, but we'll be back soon with more constitutional history from the United States, the United Kingdom, and around the world.